It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Benjamin Mays said, Honest communication is built on truth and integrity and upon respect of the one for the other. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary, as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, thanks for joining us today. Talk to us anytime with your feedback or questions at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. Dig deeper after this episode by downloading our comprehensive CQ Rewind show notes. It's a visual and contextual map for everything we cover. That's on our website and in our weekly newsletter. Plus, check out our YouTube channel. We're putting out cool content for all age groups with new videos every week, all available at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what are we talking about? Well, Rick, our question is, Contradictions Part 3. Does God contradict himself? Our theme text is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So, does God contradict himself? We all need foundational principles to believe in and solid ground to stand upon. Human nature thrives where such a firm base can be found. Achievement can flourish when there is an unflinching belief in a relationship, in the, in the science of a matter, or, or in one's own, own, one's own talent. For Bible-believing Christians, this foundation does not get any more significant than the unwavering character of God himself. All that we stand for relies on the truth of who God is and what drives him. It's this very foundation of God's own character that many critics boisterously attack. Accusations fly, claiming the Bible itself condemns our God. They claim it shows contradictions in his actions, flaws in his character, and general confusion. So coming up in today's podcast, talking about God and the apparent contradictions that surround him is a seriously emotionally charged conversation. Does God live in darkness or light? Answering this very basic question gives us a foundation for others. We give this answer in our second segment. Does God prohibit graven images, or does he allow only certain ones that he likes? Some scriptures sure seem to show that God works on both sides of this issue. In our third segment, we're going to find concrete reasoning needed to solve this issue. Does God consider anger a sin? If so, why does he seem so mad so often? This is a big point. If we're supposed to be like God, then should we be honing our own anger skills? Clarity on this matter is achieved in segment four. And finally, does God ever forsake his children? Does he ever leave them alone and unprotected? These questions are at the core of the battle over what the character of God really is. We weigh in on it in our final segment. Rick, let's be honest. There are several scriptures that certainly seem to reveal contradictory views about God. So, what do we do with those scriptures, and what do they really say? And are we willing to accept truth over opinion? That, my friend, is a very good question. Are we willing to accept truth over opinion? So, Jonathan, as we get started with this particular podcast, we want to just reference a couple of podcasts we've done before this. Um, 
in terms of contradictions in the Bible. Already covered in podcast 1072 in May of this year, May 2019. Jonathan, what was the question? Does God change his mind or always keep it the same? You know, and what we found out in that podcast is that God doesn't change his mind. However, many of the details surrounding his decisions look mysterious, and we need to examine that. That's why that podcast is there. Also, June 3rd of this year, podcast 1076, what were some of the questions we were talking about there? Well, does God promote or accept human sacrifice? And with that question, first of all, I've got to answer that. The answer is positively, absolutely no. Why then did he allow Abraham to almost sacrifice his son? That's why you listen to the podcast. But the answer to that is no. What else was there? Does God teach us to kill or not to kill? Not to kill. Period. End of statement. So what does that mean? Again, the answer is directly in that particular podcast. And what's the others, other questions? Does God justify lying? Does God make people lie? Does God send out lies to trip people up? Ah, these are good questions. Listen to the podcast. Okay, there's a lot to understanding how all of this works. The bottom line is no, God does not justify not telling the truth. Absolutely not. Does he make people lie? No. How do you harmonize scriptures that seem to say those things? Podcast 1076. So as we get started with this, Jonathan, we, we brought in the, 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 the big guns for dealing with this. So Julie is with us. Good day, Julie. How are you? Hello, Rick and Jonathan. I'm doing very well, and I'm very happy to be here talking about these important scriptures that seemingly bring up contradictions about God. And Julie, just very quickly, because you're not on always, who are you and what what makes you uh, come here this particular podcast? I am one of the CQ volunteers, and I work on the CQ Rewind show notes every week and a lot of the um, exciting things that happen at ChristianQuestions.com on our website and a little bit of social media and all kinds of witness efforts that we have through Christian Questions. And for this particular topic. This is very important. You know, there's many people who spend a lot of time and energy trying to discredit the Bible. And I was I was pretty shocked at how many videos and blogs and books there are that highlight these supposed contradictions. And the contradictions range from the academic discussion to the laughable. So Christian Questions has assembled a team of volunteers who are searching out these contradictions so that we can address as many of them as we can in these various episodes. And we're going to do a series over the next four weeks to bring to light what we found. So this week is all about contradictions having to do with God. Next week will be issues around Jesus's resurrection. Then we're going to do one on various contradictions found in the book of Genesis that goes way beyond just creation. And finally, those about Jesus's life and teachings. And if our listeners have contradictions they want discussed, let us know. Email us at inspiration at christianquestions.com. That's inspiration at christianquestions.com. Or go through our website and let's hear it because we want to talk about it. So who are we talking to, though? (laughs) We want to know who our audience is as far as. What are we trying to do here? Well, you know, and and before we get started, that's a really important question. Who is this discussion meant for? And folks, I will tell you flat out, this is not meant for that hardcore atheist who likes to look down at those of us who are Christian and laugh and say, look at the foolishness that they believe in. And the reason it's not for them is because we want to present logic and reason and scripture. And we want to present them together. And we want to present it to an audience who can say, 
I'm willing to hear it if, there, if it's logical. And if there's something good there, I'm willing to pursue it in good conscience. In, in, from the bottom of my heart, I want to know. Rather than those who want to laugh at you, we want to talk to those who want to know about why we believe what we believe. That's our audience. And if you're in that category, whether you have faith or not, but you want to know, welcome. Hopefully this can make some sense to you. So with that all said, miniseries uh, for the next four weeks is beginning. Let's start with the contrary. Let's start with the other perspective. And I already can see the, the look on Jonathan's face. He's like, really, oh, do you have to right. go there? <laughs> We're going to go to a, a soundbite from an, uh, uh, an interview uh, on God from Patheos. Uh, and this is from the Friendly Atheist. And they're inter- interviewing a gentleman by the name of Stephen Fry. Now, he is an English writer and a comedian who's got a lot to say about God, and none of it is very good. But we're going to put this on the table because this represents a completely opposite perspective of where we come from. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, I'll say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. You know, I, I find that interesting, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but think about this. He's posed the question, okay, you were dead, and you're miraculously raised from the dead, and you are now standing before the God who raised you from the dead. Are you really going to be that arrogant as to say, shame on you for doing this or that? Wouldn't it be more appropriate to say, how did I get here? What happened that I'm alive again? And by the way, there's a lot of questions that I don't know the answers to. I need to understand them. See, to me, Julie, that's our audience. That's what we want. That individual who's going to be, be willing to ask rather than condemn. But that sets the, the, the guidelines here for the kinds of things, the kinds of sources that we have drawn our information from. So, Jonathan, what's our overall question for today? Is God a God of confusion or order? Okay. God, and let's give an answer. God is ultimately the God of order. However, he often allows and uses confusion to serve his ultimate ends. Think about that as we unfold some scriptures. Jonathan, let's get right into some scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 29 to 30, and then verse 33, kind of to set. And this is where our theme scripture comes from. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So the order and peace in this verse, it says God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. It's interesting that the peace in this verse is not referring to the world, but to proper Christian behavior. And Jonathan, just a couple more details on that. Yeah, and the context of this is this is referring to speaking in tongues. And they're 
being given instruction by the Apostle Paul. And the purpose is to have the congregations edify and build one another up in knowledge and not with just noise. And that's the thing. Build one another up in knowledge and not noise. And that's what they were, they were misusing those gifts of the Spirit. So let's understand that when it, this scripture says God is a God of peace, it's not a generalized statement. Why are we saying that? Because at this point in time, God does not seek perfect order for this present world. He doesn't. Okay, we'll get into that further, but that's where we're starting. Let's go to Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Jonathan, let's get started on that. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Okay, so the whole earth used the same language and the same words. This is, we're, we're going to be getting into um, how God confounded the languages uh, in, in, in Scripture. Okay, so now... Um, let, let's go to uh, verse, verse 2. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain on the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, these folks that found this plain on the land of Shinar were descendants of Nimrod, okay? Nimrod and his descendants. And so what are, what are they saying? They said to one another, come, let us make bricks. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. So when we look at these verses, Julie, and we look at them in the context of Scripture, I mean, these guys are just saying, hey, we want to move, uh, we, we want to settle in here. Is there is there a problem with this? Well, the problem is God told them, move, get out, start spreading out, start populating the earth. And what the people were doing is saying, well, let's just stay in our own little tribes here where we all speak the same language. We've got our, you know, our commerce set up and our kids are all in the same schools and, you know, all the reasons (laughs) why not to move. And God needed time to move on. He needed this earth to be populated. But they said, nope, we're going to stay here and we're going to build this big tower that's coming up where, Um, As long as we can see that tower, we're going to stay within that range. We're not going beyond that tower. Okay, so we're talking about the the beginning construction of the Tower of Babel. Now, there is an issue here. There is an issue here with scriptural context, and that's what people jump all over. And let's, let's go back to Genesis chapter 10, verse 5. For these, the coastlands of the nations, were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So, Julie, when we look at—go ahead. Yeah, you see the problem here. So the contradiction is overriding. God's not the author of confusion. And yet, number one, first he causes the confusion by—what we're going to read soon is about that they, you know, had them— Um, suddenly none of them could speak the same language anymore, which required them to scatter. But next you saw what happened. You just read Genesis 10, 5, which is a chapter before. So in Genesis 10, it says everyone had their own language. They're all separated. In chapter 11, it says, hey, everyone has the same language and they're staying together. So what's the deal? It's (laughs) out of sequence. Okay. It looks like... It looks like it's out of sequence. So let's finish these verses, and let's get then to get to that question. So Jonathan 7, 8, and 9 of Genesis chapter 11, and here's what God does. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is named and called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. So you've got the God confusing the language of the whole earth. Is God a God of confusion? We said no. Well, Julie, what you're saying is, well, here it says he did. And further, he confused the order of his chapters because in chapter 10 it said they already had their own languages. Here it said they they didn't have their own languages. Right. So one of the things we want to do today is go over some basic contradiction principles. What we want to do is have people of faith that don't get thrown off of their faith because someone comes up with some contradiction that doesn't make sense to you. So we felt that if we use some of these as examples, we could take certain principles that you can use when a situation comes up again, and and you can understand it a little better. So in this one, this first contradiction principle is to deduce when flashback is being used as a literary device. And you know, in literature, flashback is an occurrence in which a character remembers an earlier event that happened before the current point of the story. And it it fills in details so we understand how they got where they are. So we feel that here, flashback is being used. First of all, the nations get separated, everyone gets their own language. Now let me tell you how that was done. Right. Why it was done. So chapter 10 says, here's the big picture. Chapter 11 says, here are the details of how that big picture we just told told you about actually came to be. So it's not out of order. It's just a, 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 a device used to say, big picture, and here's some details. And that and happens a lot throughout the Bible. Yeah, it does. Jonathan, go ahead. And I have a question, Rick. So God used confusion to fulfill his will, right? Yeah. Yes, he did. Absolutely, yes, he did. Is God a God of confusion or order, Jonathan? He's a God of order. Why do you say that? Well, God's mind and plan are profound and eternal. Let us be careful not to confuse a detail for a conclusion or a method for a result. I want to repeat that. Let's be careful to not confuse a detail for a conclusion or a method for a result. God used confusion because he had told the people of the earth to spread out. they This group didn't. And he said, you're not doing what I said. I'm going to make it so you have to. So he used confusion to accomplish the spreading of people out throughout the earth. Was that a bad thing? No. Who was in the wrong? They were. They didn't listen. God corrected them. He made them spread out. He's not a God of confusion, but confusion can be a tool. So we need to put these things all in order. So look, obviously, we would say that God is not confused. Now we need to get down to the business of proving it. The big picture about God would logically begin with the question, is he a God of darkness or light? We're podcasting live every Monday night from 8 to 9.30. You can talk to us direct through our chat at ChristianQuestions.com. We also welcome your comments or questions any day of the week. Just hit the Contact Us button. We're now out of the starting gate. Let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. Naturally, as Christians, our response is that God is unequivocally the God of light. Having said that, there are scriptures that can easily be seen as confusing what we consider to be a straightforward point. Our obligation and challenge is therefore simple. Look at the scriptures and find the harmony. And that's what we're here to do. 
Look at the scriptures and find the harmony. Look at the scriptures and find the harmony because it is there. Well, Rick, a simple question. Does God live in darkness or light? And so where's the confusion here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Well, you know, because there are some scriptures that seem to indicate that God seems to dwell in darkness. Well, does he or does he not? Is it darkness or light? Does he live in both places? He has like a summer home. I mean, see, that's this is the way people look at scriptures and they look down upon it and, and pick out all of these details and say, see, see, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. We submit to you that. What's wrong is taking things out of their context. So before we go too far with this, let's go to another soundbite. This is from a different individual, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is an astrophysicist, a very well-known astrophysicist. Um, and this uh, is on Scientism Exposed, and it's from a site called Celebrate Truth on YouTube. And it's, and it's basically him mocking the Bible a little bit uh, because he's looking at it through very strict scientific eyes. Let's listen to this. This is actually actually very, very fascinating. If you knew nothing about science and you read, say, the Bible, the Old Testament, which in Genesis is an account of nature, that's, that's what that is, and I said to you, give me your description of the natural world based only on this. You would say the world was created in six days and that stars are just little points of light, much lesser than the sun. In fact, they can fall out of the sky, right? Because that's what happens during, during the um, revelation. The stars will fall out of the sky and land on Earth. So to even write that means you don't know what those things are. You have no concept of what the actual universe is. So everybody who tried to make proclamations about the physical universe based on Bible passages got the wrong answer. (laughs) You know, there's a lot to take issue with there, especially where he's talking about, you know, you read the Bible and then you believe the Bible is, you know, that the earth was created in six literal days. Look, I submit to you that the original language does not give you that final conclusion. The original language, it's six periods of time. And we're not going to take the time now, but it's clear if you look at how the language is used. So he's drawing a conclusion that for someone that intelligent, I'm surprised at. I'm surprised that he didn't get a little bit of background and say, huh, I wonder what that word actually means. So be that as it may. And also, Revelation and Stars, Revelation is a book of symbols. You know, you've, you've got to realize and understand that very, very clearly. And Jonathan, just a quick quick side story on challenging God. Okay, we've used this many, many years ago, but uh, there's a story. I don't know where I got it from. I didn't make it up. I'm not that smart. But the story is that there's this scientist who decides he is going to challenge God to a creation contest because he believes he can create humanity in a better, better way. So he comes before God and says, okay, we're going to, we're going to, I want to challenge you to a, a contest of, of creation. And God says, sure, fine, we can, we can do that. Why don't you get started? So the man says, okay. The scientist, he's very confidently reaches down and picks up a handful of dirt. And God says, uh-uh-uh, use your own dirt. Just, just <laughs> that simple. Use your own dirt, okay? Because my creation is there too. And my creation is before the dirt and before the water. And it's before the, the cosmos even. And that's the point. We, when we want to contradict God and, and look down upon him, we've got to think about what we're actually doing. So let's talk about light. Is God a, a God of darkness or of light? Daniel, 
The prophet Daniel, as he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in the Old Testament, gives a powerful perspective on this. Daniel chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden thing. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. So God understands the dark and has the light come out from him. See, that gives us a perspective, something very clear that gives us both sides of it, but it's saying very unequivocally that God is, light comes from him. James 1.17 seems to bring that further. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Father of lights, no variation, no shifting shadow. That gives you a sense of God being not only in light, but being light. So before we get to the other side of that coin, let's remember our principle of purpose. That's that's what's going to be our principle this time. God uses various tools to accomplish his plan. So with that, let's take a look at the other side. Okay, so think about, as we go through this segment, this principle of purpose, God using various tools to accomplish his plan. So we've got these scriptures that give us light. This is clear. So where does the notion of dwelling in darkness come from? Well, let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2 to begin with. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So, Jonathan, with that, that, that sounds like weird. You know, what, what's going on there? Well, Rick, the tabernacle is a portable tent-like structure where God dwelled with the Israelites. The Ark of the Covenant, you know, remember that movie uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Ah, yes. Well, It was in one of those rooms. Now, the smoke in that room actually came from the room next door. The high high priest was to bring in incense and put it on the altar, and that smoke would rise up and go into the other compartment. And in my research, Rick, it's very interesting that I found there's only one source of light where the Ark of the Covenant is, and that's between the cherubim, between the angels, and it's coming up, you know, miraculously. Now... It was told that the high priest would die if he looked upon that light. So the reason for the smoke was to come in to cover that brightness so he could offer the blood from the sacrifice and and put it on the altar the way he was told to do it. So God protected the high priest with the smoke to guard him from that brilliant light. So that smoke then, where it says, I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, it's not a cloud in the sky like you'd think but it's the cloud from the smoke from the incense, and it was an actually a, a protection for the high priest. That's right. And so when it says, I will appear there, that's not, a, that's not an ominous thing. That's actually a very good thing. Now, now Solomon and others quote this particular manifestation of God's presence. We're only going to go to one of those scriptures, but 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he will dwell in thick clouds, I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. So you have that tabernacle now being replaced by a temple, and all of those things from that temporary dwelling tabernacle place are going into the temple. So he's referencing that same cloud, that same protection, if you will. Exodus 13, 21. 
The Lord was going about them in a pillar of a cloud by day to lead them on their way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. So let's let's get this straight. Is God actually inside the cloud and inside that pillar of fire? Is God, if you say, okay. (laughs) No. (laughs) He's not, but his presence is shown to us in those things. Julie, go ahead. Well, the thing that's amazing is this this cloud would guide the Israelites by day and by night it turns into a pillar of fire. And that was so that they could have light to travel by in the desert at night. This was a gift. And I found this wonderful scripture in Nehemiah 9.19. It says, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way that they were to take. The cloud was something visible that they could see so they would know where to travel. It was the original GPS. <laughs> this was a gift. This was nothing nefarious. Right. And, and so when, you know, you, the, the idea, well, God, well, you know, look, God's in that cloud. Well, that's a very good thing. That's a very good thing. And you're right. It's a gift. It's grace. It's mercy to his people who needed guidance. But, you know, God is not three-dimensional. And let, sometimes I think we forget that. He's not inside this cloud or inside this pillar of fire, but his presence is shown to us through those things in those Old Testament stories. Now, God's presence is also shown by the clouds of trouble necessary to bring his kingdom. Psalm 97, verses 1 and 2, and then let's go to verses 5 and 6. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord, the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people have seen his glory. So, Jonathan, when we look at a scripture like that, clouds and thick darkness surround him, and then the mountains melt like wax. Is this literal? It is a picture of of trial, of desperation, of change. Yes. And God is going to cause that change to bring his kingdom. So when you have clouds and thick darkness surround him, what it's saying is the kingdom of God is moving in. And it moves in under the guise, under the, the establishment of trouble first. When it talks about mountains melting like wax, mountains represent governments in Scripture. And again, these are things that study of Scripture will reveal if we allow that study to reveal. So this is a picture. It's not showing that, I know where God is. He's inside that cloud. No, what it's saying is the presence of God is coming upon the earth through great trouble and the, and the falling of the, the present government so his government can take over. And that's why Jesus said, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Psalm 18, verses 7, 9, and 11. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken, because he was angry. He bowed the heavens also, and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. Again, you've got more trouble, darkness, thick darkness under his feet. Does God have feet that he's hiding in darkness? No. No. See, and this is part of the misunderstanding that so many people have when they try to look at Scripture to just simply pull it apart. They're going to take things, and they're going to be grossly out of context. And when you take something grossly out of context, you have a grossly inaccurate conclusion. 
God is not in sight of darkness. He uses darkness. He uses trouble because those things are the results of sin and are what is necessary to remove sin from this world. And the bottom line is, through trouble, God brings light. Psalm eighteen twenty-seven to 29. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. For you light my lamp. The Lord my God illuminates my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. So God is the source of light, he's saying. And, and it's showing us that the, 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 the balancing, if you will, of things to be the way they're supposed to. You, you God, light my lamp. The Lord illuminates my darkness. Julie, you talked about that principle of purpose. Let's expand on that a little bit here. So our principle of purpose, again, was God uses various tools to accomplish his plan. And I think that people of faith can take heart that the scriptures can hold up to the light of examination. And here, darkness is a tool that God used. And did you ever hide in darkness? It means you didn't want to be seen. And he's hiding in these cases because that's part of an eternal plan. And there's nothing here to imply that God is evil or has a split personality. It's just something that, you know, they're, they're trying to pick things apart. And it's not, when you analyze it, it's nothing like that. So the idea that darkness is a tool of God, it is. He uses it for his purposes, and his purposes are bigger than ours. So, Jonathan, again, the question is, do we have a God of confusion or a God of order? Order. God is light. His presence is not bound by any earthly device. He does use the cover of darkness and trouble as a tool to bring ultimate righteousness and light. The cover of darkness and trouble are tools to bring ultimate righteousness. And you look at that, and it really isn't that hard to get if you allow yourself to see scriptures in the context that they are actually written. Establishing that God is light is a crucial beginning. Maybe it's time to begin getting into the messier stuff. God prohibits the creation of idols, yet in places he instructs his people to construct them. Why? As we try to stay on track with research, sometimes you go down unexpected roads. That's part of education, debates, and differing opinions. You just can't take everyone at their word, and oftentimes you have to consider the other side of the story. That's why we're always asking our listeners to give their opinions on the questions we're answering. Message us at ChristianQuestions.com or through the Christian Questions app. Speaking of the other side, time to go in reverse with a CQ Contradiction. On the surface, this is a massive contradiction, the item of idols. We always talk about God's attitude towards his people as demanding their allegiance in a positive way. He wants us to be true to only him because any other loyalty to any other higher power is not in, that's not in line with him amounts to support for corruption. Jonathan, this is a huge point. God is adamant about us being clear in our allegiance to him because anything less supports corruption and that's a pretty strong statement but you know god is the creator so let's take a look at that again through the eyes of someone who sees things entirely differently than we do we are going to go back to uh, neil degrasse tyson the um 
the astrophysicist, and he's talking about the Bible, and he's talking about God, uh, and scientism exposed, exposed from a site called Celebrate Truth, and uh, he's questioning Christian approach to Scripture. So what happened was, when science discovers things, and you want to stay religious, or you want to continue to believe that the Bible is, is unerring, what you would do is, you would say, well, let me go back to the Bible and reinterpret it. Then you say things like, oh, they didn't really mean that literally, they meant that figuratively. So this whole sort of reinterpretation of the fig how figurative the poetic passages of the Bible are came after science showed that this is not how things unfolded. And so the educated religious people are perfectly fine with that. It's the fundamentalists who want to say that the Bible is the literally, literal truth of God that and want to see the Bible as a science textbook, enlightened religious people are not behaving that way. They're saying, yes, yeah, science is cool, we're good with that, and use the Bible for, to get your spiritual enlightenment and your emotional fulfillment. Now look, <laughs> we don't consider ourselves fundamentalist, okay? But we're not cool with the idea of going back and reinterpreting something. What we are cool with is the idea of taking the Bible in the context that it was written, understanding the languages it was written in, and the purposes it was written for. You don't have to reinterpret anything in Scripture if you get the original meaning to begin with. It's not the fault of the Scriptures that people come up with all kinds of weird ways of looking at things, and then science contradicts it. There are many scientific facts that are in Scripture that were not even close to being known when those Scriptures were written. Not even close to being known. It talked about the, the, the sun going around in an orbit. Who knew that? It talked about Scriptures where you have talked about the, the, the fish are in the paths of the seas. Who knew that there were currents in the ocean? Nobody, except God. And he happened to put it into a psalm so David could write it. So somebody well, could well, find it. Nemo knew. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jonathan. Nemo. Ah. Nemo knew. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, we've got to see Scripture for what it is. Now, having said that, we have a major potential contradiction to deal with here. Jonathan, what is it? That's right, Rick. Does God prohibit graven images or does he only allow certain ones that he likes? <laughs> okay, thanks for asking it that way. Uh, you know, are there, is, is it just, you know, because God is arbitrary like we are? I don't think so. Let's look at the idea of no idols. Is there a difference between a graven image and an idol? Let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 6. Now, this is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. These are, this is God speaking to Israel, and this is what he says. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, by sh but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so first of all, Julie, there's another principle that we want to look at in this segment. What is it? Yeah, so let's 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 practice our contradiction principle, the same one that we did before. God uses various tools to accomplish his plan. So let's look and see how we can solve this idol 
contradiction, air quotes, to um, by use by seeing how God uses tools. Okay, so these are the beginning of the Ten Commandments, and there are in these several verses two commandments. First commandment: You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment. You shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or earth or so forth and so on. And then verse 5, if you don't read verse 5 along with verse 4, you don't have the whole commandment. So I'm going to condense it so we get the point of the commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. That is the second commandment. Now, oftentimes, Jonathan, when we see the second commandment written it says, in, in, in the uh, abbreviated form, it says, you shall not have any graven images. And that's all it says. That mm-hmm. is an incomplete statement, because that's not what the Scripture said. So if we want to write out the second commandment, and I'm, I'm making this a point for a point, okay? We want to make sure we understand the whole second commandment. You shall not make any idol, and you shall not worship them or serve them. That's what the second commandment is. Having said that... Let's move forward now. Let's look at the instructions that Israel was given when they were to get to Canaan. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 3. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire. And you shall cut down the graven images of their gods and obliterate obliterate (laughs) their name from that place. How about that one? (laughs) And that's exactly what you did to that word. You obliterated it. That's what you did. (laughs) That was good. I couldn't have planned that any better. Um, So here's the thing. What he's saying is these idols, these false gods, obliterate them. Completely, utterly, totally destroy them. Destroy those idols. That's what he's saying. I've got a question. Go ahead. So... Where it says, um, in this particular translation you're using, it's New American Standard, and it says, don't make for yourself idols. The King James Version, we hear a lot more, perhaps, and that is, uh, calls them graven images. So I looked up a graven image, and a graven image is basically a carved thing. It's a, it's a representation. So, Rick, what is the difference between if I make a bobblehead of Rick versus a golden calf like am i are we allowed to make imagery because i know them in the muslim faith they do not make any representations of faces everything is these beautiful intricate geometric patterns in their artwork for this purpose so can i make a rick bobblehead <laughs> imagine uh, okay. that yeah i know well that i don't would know be funny. yeah thanks jonathan thanks a lot <laughs> I'm head going around, around, around. Right. yeah i guess that would be funny for a lot of people um it, what are you going to do with the rick bobblehead now look if it's something that you're going to make so you can look and say isn't that funny sure you can make a rick bobblehead there's nothing wrong with that but if it's something that you're going to say oh let's put that up there and 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 make it some kind of higher image then 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 you're in trouble Okay, bobblehead or not, what do you do with it? Okay, so verse 4, you shall not make for yourself any idol or likeness. That's why we need to join like bookends. Verse 3, you should have no other gods before me. 4, don't make the idol. And 5, don't Don't worship worship it. it. Exactly. Precisely. Because you don't make any representation of any god. That That is strictly thoroughly that you will worship that you will worship utterly okay. forbidden jonathan go ahead and rick and julie the the canaanites were worshiping the goddess of fertility 
uh, the mother of goddesses, the queen mother, and they had trees and poles representing her. And so they were worshiping these things. And God said, take them down. Right. Let's avoid those. Let, let's knock those out of our sight so that it doesn't hinder us. Yeah. And notice he didn't say, look, let's just re, let's reformat their use. He didn't say that because they had a representation that was evil. And it was, no, get rid of them. Remember that thought, because that's going to come in very, very importantly as we get through this segment. Now, let's go to Exodus 25, 17 to 19, because we just said God is really against these idols that we worship. And yet... Yeah, here's what the atheists throw out at us, this Exodus one. Okay, Jonathan, go ahead. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work, at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherub of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. Okay, so we've got these cherubs, these figures of angels. Interestingly, it's said in Exodus chapter 20, not any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth shall you make. And yet here you've got these two cherubim of gold on this mercy seat. And Jonathan, we were just talking about that mercy seat in the last segment. We were, and it's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And it, basically, Rick, it represents spirituality. Um, the unseen heavens revealed to, in a way for us humans, uh, to, to kind of understand it. Um, angels were not made to be worshipped. It was God's presence with his chosen people. And uh, actually, I, had a, I remembered, didn't the Israelites bring the Ark of the Covenant to a battle to try to say, look, we have God on our side? Um, what, what happened in that battle? Yeah, it did not go well. It was like an idol that they put out in front of their enemy. And not only did they lose the battle, what else did they lose? They lost the Ark. It was taken by the enemy and God removed it from them because they misused it. And see, that's an important point. So you've got these things, but they were not made as an idol of worship. Rather, they were made uh, as a representation of the presence of God. And, and it was a very, very different kind of thing. Okay, So when we look at this in terms of observing idolatry, if you will, the second commandment actually said there's no allowance for any image of anything to be worshipped in place of God, because God is jealous. He's jealous for the fidelity of his people. God did not say you can't fabricate an image as a tool or symbol regarding his watch care over his people. There's an enormous difference between the two. Now, we've got to be careful because you can take those things on, this, on the side of this issue that are acceptable and you can mess them up. How do we know that? Well, how about this? Because it happened in Scripture. Let's look at Numbers chapter 21, verses 6 to 9. The people are wandering through the, the wilderness. They're miserable. They're complaining against God. They're even complaining about the manna that God gave them. Here's what happens. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that we may have the serpents removed from us. So they are realizing that they have sinned, and they ask Moses, help us out. We've sinned. We've done something very wrong. What can you do to help us? Please intercede with God for us because we've made a big, big mistake. So Moses does. Here's what happens. 
And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if any serpent bit any man, when he looked on the bronze serpent, he lived. All right, Jonathan, do you have something you wanted to add there? Oh. Um, well, well, the medical symbol of today uh, is based on this biblical reference. I thought that was cool. Yeah, that is kind of an interesting thing. Um, you know, this bronze ser- servant was a tool for the people to refocus themselves, a tool of healing, not of worship. Well, yeah, they were to look to God for their healing, not to the gods of Egypt. And, you know, it's interesting to note that the serpents weren't removed. Everybody was still bitten by these venomous snakes, which apparently were something that were already in the desert. There's a particular kind of snake that they think that this was. and But a way of escape was provided. So anyone who was bitten was healed if they looked upon this bronze serpent. And this becomes really important later in our conversation. Okay, so they have this bronze serpent that is a tool for healing. It's a tool for preserving their lives. Let's fast forward now 700 years and see what happened to that tool. The good king Hezekiah is now on the throne, and he is actually a really strong God-honoring individual. Second Kings chapter 18, verses 4 and 5. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. So he destroyed paganism from among the people, just like they were instructed originally to do. And apparently a lot of that stuff didn't get done correctly, and they allowed it to come come back in. What else did he break? He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Neheshten. So the people of Israel had kept that serpent and were now worshiping that serpent. So Hezekiah destroys it. He destroyed the paganistic use of God's sacred tools of healing from among the people. And then verse 5. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. Okay, Jonathan? Well, that reminds me of destroying that serpent uh, is just like removing the ark from them because they misused it. It's yeah. a, it's a exactly the way God deals with with uh, disobedience. So you misuse the, a tool and it becomes an item of worship, and God says, "Nope, not on my watch, not here, not with my people." Hezekiah was godly and worshipped only God, and that was the point of the second commandment. Julie, you had a quote from Matthew Henry on this? Well, yeah, but real quick, Nehushtan. Oh, right. Hezekiah called it, and this is a derogatory term that impressed on them that it was worthless. Nehushtan means a brazen thing, a mere piece of brass. This isn't a magic snake that's here to bow down before. It's just, it's a nothing. It's a shmeh. Get rid of it. It's a shmeh? Um, so, a shmeh. So okay. Matthew Henry, who's a Bible commentator, he said this. He said, the brazen serpent had been carefully preserved as a memorial of God's goodness to the fathers in the wilderness, but they were idle, and it was wicked to burn incense to it. All helps to devotion that aren't warranted by the word of God interrupt the exercise of faith, and they always lead to superstition and other dangerous evils. Human nature perverts everything of this kind. True faith does not need such aids. 
The word of God daily thought upon and prayed over is all the outward help we need. So this thing turned into a pagan relic and its meaning was lost. They took an object, they made it into an object of worship regarding the serpent itself as being a healing power. But that that was perverted. God destroyed it. So there's an enormous lesson for us here in terms of dealing with the things in our own lives. God does not want graven images that we worship. Is art okay? Sure. For the sake of art. There's nothing wrong with sculpture and, 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 and the, the, the appreciation of creation in those things. That's wonderful. But the moment it becomes an object of worship in place of God, it should be destroyed. Absolutely destroyed. That's the point. Now, there's more on this serpent here. Jesus, fast forward to the New Testament, himself shows us a deeper and more profound meaning in that bronze serpent from the days of old. John 3, verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. You know, it's, it's interesting that this is John three fourteen and 15. John three sixteen is the most well-quoted scripture in all of, all of the Bible. And here, John three fourteen and 15, these are the verses beforehand. Just as the people were granted life through looking upon the bronze serpent in Exodus, so all would be granted life through believing in Jesus. Julie, the you, true healing, right? Right, exactly. Julie, do you have something you want to add with that? Well, that was the whole thing. Jesus, isn't it amazing? This He used this concept as, as Moses lifted up the surface in the wilderness, so the Son of Man should be lifted up. He foreshadowed his own execution. And remember when we said how those snakes weren't made to disappear, the copper serpent on a pole healed them if they were bitten. Likewise, our fiery trials and sin aren't removed, and our only escape for true healing is Jesus. So they were granted life if they looked at the pole. We are granted life through believing in Jesus. And so it's not replacing God as the object of worship, but it's Correct. placing our faith in the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the real lesson here. So, Jonathan, a God of confusion or a God of order? Order. God's commands were and are precise. Worship only him and never worship any likeness of anything in heaven or in earth. Follow his word and direction only. So it's really simple. We need to understand that God did not say you cannot create any image of anything. He did say no image of anything should ever be worshipped in place of me, I am your God, I am a jealous God, because I love you, I created you, and any allegiance to anything less than me, God Almighty, is allegiance to that which is corrupt. That's the bottom line of this whole thing. You know, it's sobering to see how easily something good can be something bad. We've got to keep God in our focus. God is love, yet he often seems to be angry. Is anger a sin? Or is it acceptable? Is God forever angry? Learning about your hosts is always a good thing. Rick and Jonathan both love studying the Bible and sharing their thoughts with you every week. Did you know they've been doing this program for over 20 years? It started as a radio show in 1998. We moved to an exclusive podcast in 2016 and have enjoyed talking to all our listeners all over the world. Plus, these guys are best friends and longtime students of the Bible. That's part of why our Christian Questions team of volunteers and listeners feel like it's a big family. Talk to us anytime and hear over a thousand archive programs at ChristianQuestions.com. Now, let's get back at it. What's next, Rick? 
You know, there are many scriptures that talk about God's anger. Because anger is such an out-of-control human problem, we easily assume that it must be the same way with God. Out of control and based on emotion. It is not. Let's establish the clear differences between God's anger and our anger. And this is a really important aspect of this whole matter. Um, and Jonathan, just before, very, very quickly before we get to this, Trish just handed me a question, and Trish is really good at Okay, here's an obvious question that you should have answered you didn't. Real simple. Well, don't we worship Jesus? And the answer is yes, we do. Well, didn't that blow the whole thing up? No, because God said so. That's why. God said so. Jesus is not an image. Jesus is the Son of God. And worship is due him for what he did, and that's a command of God. So yes, we do worship Jesus because God said so. It has nothing to do with idolatry. So, Jonathan, let's go ahead. Sure, Rick. Does God consider anger a sin? And if so, why does he seem so mad so often? (laughs) And, you know, you can find a lot of scriptures that talk about the anger of God, and folks, atheists are good at that. They're really good at that. Let's go back to Stephen Fry on God from Pathos, the friendly atheist, or Pathos, rather. And uh, he's now in this interview, he's been saying, well, you know, what if, what if you're accepted into heaven? What are you going to do? And he gives a very interesting answer. Let's listen. And you think you're going to get in on oh. that? But I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were, they didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac. So, obviously he doesn't understand God at all. And, uh, you know, it's really kind of a shame because things like that get a lot of press and a lot of attention, and it is a shallow, unthought-out approach to God. Because think about it. If you are given—again, I'm saying like I said it before. You're given life from death. Don't you owe the individual that brought you that life the respect to ask rather than just judge? Seriously. Let's think about that. So— is God's anger forever? Let's talk about that, Julie, principle for this segment. So in this principle, we want to talk about how to distinguish between a temporary emotion and an eternal purpose. So temporary emotion, eternal purpose. Watch for that as we move through this. This is really, really important. So let's take a look at God and anger. Jeremiah seventeen four. And you will, even of yourselves, let go of your inheritance that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger, which will burn forever. You know, now somebody like Mr. Fry would look at that scripture and say, See, God's anger, there's never any way that you can stop it. That's what that scripture says. You see how angry and how what a maniac that God is. Hold on. Let's look at the words for a second, shall we? The word for and then the word ever. Jonathan, just a couple of the definitions. This is fascinating. As far or long or much as. And the other is concealed. That is vanishing point, generally time out of mind. Okay. Put the two words together, forever, and they can mean literally, 
literally, according to the definitions, as far as the vanishing point. What do you think that would mean? When you are looking out on a very clear day and there's no, no hills and it's just straight, and you, can, you look and you, you, know, you look down and you say, I can see forever. Well, no, you can't. You, mm. you can see until the horizon turns because of the curve of the earth. And then your sight stops. It looks like forever, but it's not. As far as the vanishing point is literally what that meant. Beyond the horizon. So what he was saying is, in the context of these events, it looks like God's anger is going to always be there. But beyond the horizon, aha, there's something else. God forgets sins after they are forgiven. Think about that. Jeremiah 31, 34. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And Rick, I love this. This is such a beautiful promise. Uh, Forgive and forget. This is a picture of God's kingdom because of Jesus' ransom sacrifice. All will be awakened and will learn of God, learn from their past mistakes, and will live life the way it was intended love and harmony, honoring God and his son. And it reminds me of Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You know, and, and you, you see the power of the sacrifice of Jesus there. Now let's read Psalm 103, 12 to 14, then I want to put the two together. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. So when you see that first scripture that said, well, God's anger is, is the fire of his anger is kindled forever, as far as the horizon, essentially. Here you see beyond the horizon. Here you see the results of that. Because when we talked earlier about trouble and is God hidden in darkness, nobody uses darkness and trouble to accomplish his ultimate good. You can see that the end result is something that is not dark. It's something that is not evil. It's something that is not capricious or angry or or selfish. It is something that has eternal value. That's why God is jealous. So again, angry God. Well, God is jealous. Deuteronomy 6, 14 to 15. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. That sounds terrible. That sounds awful. And again, somebody like Stephen Fry would look at that and say, you see, that's exactly what I'm describing. Sir... Let's understand eternity. Let's understand the plan. Let's understand what provokes that kind of anger. It's the well-being of his people. Looking at Jewish history, we see them leave and return to God many times. And what's the point of that? The point is simple. God is forgiving. God is forgiving, and his plan is there for a purpose that will last for eternity. So you have the anger and the difficulty for a moment— And then you have eternity, and let's take a quick look at when God doesn't have to be angry. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 28, and 28, I'm sorry. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
When all these things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. The last enemy abolished is death. That, uh, Jonathan, I don't see anger in that. Eternal life? Uh, that's beautiful, Rick. It is. You know, and, and even in the judgment that is necessary, there's still compassion. Matthew twenty five forty six. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, now, here, here's the thing that people confuse all the time. And again, the atheists look at this and say, well, this is another scripture that talks about how God is in- eternally angry. The problem is they say, well, this is talking about a burning hell. It's not, because that's not taught in Scripture. Because eternal punishment is not torture, it's simply a final sentence of, the cease, of ceasing to exist. That is not being angry forever. That's passing a final judgment and moving on. So observing God's anger, Jonathan, what do we see here? God's anger is always pointed at sin and disloyalty. It is not arbitrary and not forever, as his plan will alleviate the very thing he is angered about. So, Julie, just in in terms of the principle we talked about, the eternal purpose versus temporary emotion. We, we've looked at God in light of eternal purpose and his anger. Any, any thoughts on that before we go to human anger? Well, you know, first of all, what struck me is that, you know, when we said God is a jealous God, here he created the entire universe. He created our, our molecular cellular biology in this giant universe. And he has these, these peoples that instead of being appreciative and worshiping him, they decide they're going to worship a rock. <laughs> or they're going to set up these elaborate gods, these Greek gods that, you know, do all kinds of crazy things that humans do. It's like, hello, look at all I've done for you. A simple thank you, please. And instead, they keep, we, we as humans keep getting way off the path. So, again, if people could just understand that God has a plan and the plan is being worked and it's bigger than everybody, it's bigger than what you're seeing, and it involves faith. And it involves putting all these things in order. That's what we're looking at. It's not these little temporary things that you're picking out, these little words. We've got to be thinking bigger. You know, and, and to see God's anger for what it is as a, an eternal purpose is to take it and, and understand it in a completely different way than we understand human anger. And that's the difference his anger, and you, and people can say if they want to argue, well, you know, then why did God let sin happen? You know, and how come he's angry when he could stop it? Look, be a parent for a moment, will you? Just be a parent for a moment and look at when your child, as a teenager especially, and I've been through this, makes those choices that are horrible, and sometimes you let them go down a path for a little bit, and you're not happy with any of it, not one second but you let certain things happen, and then you've got to go through the consequences. And that's not fun either, and you're still upset. And then you've got to go through the, 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 the pulling things back into order, and that's not fun either, and you're still upset. Why did you let them do it? So they could learn a lesson. Why would you let them do it? So they could be better. God is a parent 10,000 times better than we are. So that's how we've got to see this. So let's look at human anger. Okay, is human anger a sin? Well, Matthew 5.22 kind of says so. What does that say? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. 
So, and again, fiery hell into Gehenna. Let's get that straight. Now, look, this kind of anger that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 is really deep and serious. In Jewish culture, unless you understand Jewish culture, you don't get this. In Jewish culture, they simply did not allow such name-calling. So the anger that Jesus is referring to here is the kind of anger that brings character assassination. That's what he's talking about, and that's what he's saying, that has got to stop. So no, that anger is not justifiable. Other times, scriptures look at human anger as being controllable. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry, and yet do not let sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. So, okay, you're angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil opportunity. You're there. Don't stay there. Make sure you, make, you, you are in a godly fashion in terms of trying to have your anger it, either subside, or if it's justifiable because it's righteous— have it conclude. In other words, don't live in anger. So our anger is not God's anger. Ours is temporary emotion. His is built upon eternal purpose. Let's make sure we understand that. So Jonathan, is it a God of confusion or a God of order? Order. God's anger as our creator cannot ever be confused with the anger of imperfect humanity. His anger is for the good of his creation, while our anger is reactive and most often destructive. Okay, Julie, um, thoughts of you were going to reference a program here, right? Oh, yeah, I do want to reference episode 885, What Are We So Angry About? That was an <laughs> excellent podcast that controlled, uh, sorry, that um, compared our anger with God's anger. So 885. Okay, so now, you know, as we look at all this, we've got we've to put things... In, in a very, very clear perspective. So God is not dark and not contradictory when it comes to reverence or irrationally angry. This is good news. We speak of God as always being there for us, yet the Bible speaks of him as unavailable. Which is it? Before we turn the page, we wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind. It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more, showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. So as Christians, we draw some of our greatest comfort from the assurance that God through Jesus is always with us. We know that on a practical level, there are countless individuals who have believed this and openly proclaimed that they have been abandoned by God. Are they right? Were they abandoned by God? This is an important question, Jonathan, and that's why we saved this one for the, the, the final segment of, of our, our uh, podcast today on contradictions in Scripture or proposed contradictions concerning God Almighty. Again, just a really quick uh, note from the last segment. Trish brought this back, and it's, it's in, in, important. You know, in, in relation to proper anger applied, and she says, reverse it. The parent that always rescues their child and never allows them to experience consequences, what do you get? You get a child that's never mature, that never grows up, that never can handle the difficulties and responsibilities of life. God is teaching his children the consequence of walking away from him. That's why his anger is eternal. It's for a good reason. And God has the power of life and death. Let's never forget that. Jonathan, the question here. Go ahead. 
Yes. So, Rick, does God ever forsake his children? Does he ever leave them alone and unprotected? Hard question. Let's go to back to Stephen Fry. Now, he might not like it, but, you know, he, he's a logical thinker, and I would say to a degree. And we want to be respectful as we listen to his very contrary opinion to the things that we're saying. Totally selfish. Totally. We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. It's kind of interesting. When you look at the people who are most generous and charitable, what you find is they're mostly God-fearing people by nature. By nature, what they do, what they want to be, is, is somebody that is contributory, not because they're told to be, but because that's what they ha- they've received something unmerited and they want to be able to pass it on. And I and I you know I feel bad for uh, this this gentleman for, to, for having such a such a, a warped perspective of what the scriptures actually say. So uh, the two sides of the issue are: is, is, does God forsake us or does He not forsake us? Julie, what about a, a, a principle here? Well, I think we're going to use the same one that we did before, which was we're going to look for temporary emotion versus the eternal purpose. And to go back to our friend Stephen Fry, you know. Where does Satan come into this? You know, why does God get blamed for everything when it's really the God of this world, the Bible says, is Satan. And he is allowed to reign and to interfere with man for a certain time, for a certain purpose. And after that purpose is accomplished, which is the knowledge of good and evil, it will be cut off. And see, that's the thing. For a certain time, for a certain purpose, and then... If we forget those pieces, we can't get it. But fortunately, the scriptures are very clear that those pieces exist. And so we need to put this all in its right perspective, according to scripture. So let's talk about does God forsake his people or not. Jonathan, Psalm 10.1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Sounds like God's hiding from, from David when he needs him most. Uh, yet in Psalm 145, verses 17 to 19, it seems like it's exactly the opposite. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. So you've got this other side of the coin that says, hey, he's always there. He's always around for those who fear him, and he's always going to save them. He's always going to have his hand in their lives and nothing to worry about. So in Psalm chapter 10, verse 1, it's like, well, God, you're kind of hiding. Just for kicks, let's go a little bit further in Psalm chapter 10 and see how it ends. Psalm chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. O Lord, you have heard the desires of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is on the earth will no longer cause terror. 
That's deliverance. So in Psalm chapter 10, it's like, where are you, God? And in Psalm chapter 10, it also says, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. That's not saying necessarily that God's going to stop every evil right here, right now. That's not what it's saying. Here's the thing that we need to understand with God's deliverance and not forsaking us. We are not delivered out of this world by God, nor, if we are God-fearing, are we left to suffer in this world. We are delivered through this world. There's a difference. He doesn't pluck us out of the suffering. He doesn't just leave us there, but he delivers us through it so that we can learn what we need to learn for the sake of eternity. So there are fiery snakes in our wilderness. Yes. But there is a way of deliverance because with faith, we can get through that to get to that other side. Absolutely. That's what we have to see. Deliverance is not the way we would like it to be, but it is the way God has designed it to be for the best benefit, especially of those who fear him and who follow after him. So fear, fear doesn't mean I'm afraid of him. Fear means the word there is reverence. Yes, yes, yes. To have that, that, that deep, deep respect that when we played all those sound bites, nobody seemed to have. That's the reference we're looking for. So should we therefore trust in God always to deliver us? Yes, we should. Psalm 46, verses 1 to 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Okay, he, a present help in trouble. We, we won't fear. Now, does it say that, hey, nothing's going to ever, 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 ever bad happen to you? No, it doesn't say that. But it says, don't be afraid. God is our refuge, and he's our strength. So you've got this sense of, okay, everything is good. And then we go, we're going to the other side again, Psalm 22, verse 1. Now, this is a powerful verse that those who, Julie, I imagine you came across this, those who are the atheists, look at that, this and say, aha, look at this one. Go ahead, Jonathan. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groanings. So this is a really powerful scripture, and it's a very sad scripture. Why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 was written prophetically to reflect Jesus' personal experience on the cross. That's what it was written for. It was written to reflect what he would actually experience. Jesus didn't do what he did to fulfill the psalm. The psalm was written to foreshadow what, what, what Jesus would do. There's a difference between those things. Jesus is the one who says those words. Now, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry— Jesus always addressed the Father as Father. It was here, and only here, in his entire ministry, that he addresses his Father as God. And it's, the scene is he's on the cross, and he's very close to death. Matthew 27, 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell on the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this sounds pretty ominous, because if anybody shouldn't have been forsaken, it, Jesus earned the right to always be cared for. He never did anything but God's will. He never did it any way but God's way. And he never did it in any time but in God's time. And yet he's on the cross, and he's about to die, and he cries out, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Um, this forsaking, this forsaking was necessary. It was not an ungodly or unfair or undeserved action on the part of the Father. It was required for Jesus so he could utterly complete every last detail and requirement of the ransom and the offering for sin. So, Jonathan, when we look at this verse, what we are seeing is Jesus is now in the place of all of us. Have we been forsaken as a sinful race? Yeah. Jesus took our place on the cross very, very literally, and he felt the same distance from his Father for the very first time. He had never been that far from him, and he was bearing our sins. And I think you might have touched on one of the scriptures in Isaiah 53 earlier, Jonathan, but Isaiah 53, 6 here. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord had caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So when we look at Jesus being, quote, forsaken, you know, you got to say, well, wait, was he really forsaken? Because when we think of forsaken, we think of completely abandoned. And was Jesus completely abandoned? No. God turned his face from him. How do we know that? Other scriptures actually tell us that. We're not going to get into that now. But what we need to understand is Jesus, the the 22nd Psalm that these verses appeared in, was a prophecy looking at Jesus. Let's go down toward middle to the end of the psalm and look at how that Psalm 22 experience actually progresses because it is a progressive picture. Psalm 22, verses 21 and 22. You answer me. I will tell you of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. That doesn't sound like somebody's forsaken, does it? No, not at all. What it sounds like is someone who has accomplished the will of God and he is now praising God. In that moment, Jesus was alone. You can say that, is it, was he forsaken? Yes, absolutely, for the moment. And there's nothing wrong with that, because it was the, what the price required of him. So the big picture is what we need to see when we think about God forsaking us. Because we, in our experience, can say, well, where was God when I was in this situation? Or where was God when I was dealing with that? Or how come God didn't? And we can all say that and and say, well, Jesus could have said the same thing. The point is that God's deliverance is not on our timetable and for our reasons. It's in his timetable for his reason so that he can be glorified ultimately because it's his plan for his creation. That's us. Interesting thing about this is here's how Jesus' earthly life actually ends. Now you've got that crying out, why have you forsaken me? Luke 23, verse 46. And Jesus, crying out loud, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So it's interesting that his actual last words were back to normal. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a powerful statement. And I thought, Rick... um, the last words in some of the Gospels were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So which is it? There, is there controversy here? Well, you know, actually, there's not, because the Gospels, each Gospel is not meant to be the whole story. And that's 
the reason we have four of them. You've got four perspectives putting this incredibly complex story of Jesus' ministry together. And all we need to do is put them together side by side and say, look, see how they fit? They're like pieces of a puzzle. Those who say, aha, this says it's the last, and this one says it's the last, that means one of them is wrong. No, that means that one didn't record the other part. It's really that simple. So no, there is no controversy there. So Julie, as we wrap this up, back to that principle and your thoughts on putting all of this forsaken stuff together. Well, we want to, again, distinguish between temporary emotion and eternal purpose. And so we may interpret being forsaken um, in an, a strong emotional state. Mm-hmm. Like, let's say we are, you know, um, we have a, a bad um, health issue or a car accident or something like that where we're crying out to God and perhaps we aren't saved or perhaps we are horribly hurt. But we have to look at what is the best for our highest spiritual welfare we know there will be a resurrection. We know there will be an opportunity to learn of God um, for everyone. And we know that there will be the kingdom coming. So we've got to look at it in a bigger eternal purpose than just what's happening to me right now. And that's enormous. Am I going to see these things through my temporary emotional state, which is disheveled? Or am I going to see things try to see things from the standpoint of God who's so far above who can see the beginning from the end and all of the pieces in between and try to follow his plan for me rather than my feelings for myself. So we've got to see these things in the perspective they're meant to be seen. Julie, any any final comments as we wrap this all up? Well, I think it's good to look at these things so that our faith can be strengthened and it can withstand the arguments of those who would want to throw us off our path We need to remember that the Bible can hold up to scrutiny. And I think that discussions like these are very profitable for our Christian walk. So I'm excited to look forward to the next three in this mini-series. And that's for sure. We are doing a mini-series on this, folks. You know, and the point to remember is there's lots of supposed contradictions in Scripture. What we're trying to do is assemble as many as we can in this particular mini-series and probably another mini-series later on and probably another one after that and not leave any stone unturned because we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God and it makes sense from the beginning to the middle to the end. And all we need to do is see it as a whole and then rejoice in its plan. For Jonathan, Rick, and Julie, we really appreciated being with you today. We hope you enjoyed being with us as we look at some difficult scriptures in relation to God our Father to see how they actually fit together to show us the God of compassion and love and mercy and justice. God does not contradict himself. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, Contradictions Part 4, Why So Many Contradictions Surrounding Jesus' Resurrection. Didn't know there were any? Talk to you next week and we'll see how they work out.